This episode of Intermission is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, it's guaranteed to be either a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before. And there will always be something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch and instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anywhere, anytime. Try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash filmstage. That's M-U-B-I dot slash filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Hi, and welcome to the Intermission Podcast, which is a Film Stage-affiliated podcast. It's been a little while, but we're happy to be back and be on a, a steady clip with a series of guests and films that I'm uh, very excited to talk about. For new listeners, Intermission is a podcast hosted by me. My name is Michael Snydell. And the purpose of this podcast is to have a one-on-one conversation with a guest about a international experimental or art house film that is available on streaming. In this case, uh, this week is about Adam McGoyan's 1994 breakthrough, Exotica, which is currently available on uh, Criterion along with a few of uh, Goyan's other films. Today, my guest is the esteemed editor-in-chief, in fact, of the film stage, Jordan Ropp. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you so much for inviting me, Michael. I, uh, I'm an avid listener slash, I guess, co-producer. It is nice to um, be on and talk to you. You've been a consummate supporter from the beginning, so I can <laughs> I can do nothing but have strong feelings about how you've been supporting <laughs> the podcast. But Jordan, how would you describe yourself? Your kind of place in the in the film world? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I do wear a few different hats, but yeah, I started the film stage back in 2008 with Dan Mecca uh, out of Buffalo, and now uh, now it's going on yeah almost 15 years, which is exciting. And yeah, so that keeps me busy. But then I also work work at Film on Lincoln Center and head up the marketing team there. So yeah, those are kind of the two hats I wear. And uh, yeah, so it's pretty much films all day for me. That's the way to do it. And uh, this has been available on the Criterion channel, these uh, maybe five Agoyan selections. They've been there since last year, but it does seem Mm -hmm. like Exotica and you could say a number of Agoyan's films have kind of had a checkered history of being available, which I want to transition there into what's your general relationship with this film, especially early on. Sure. Yeah. Well, with the going in general, I mean, if I, as I said, I started the website back in, in 2008. That's really got into film three or four years prior to that. But back then it made Adoration and Chloe and then Devil's Knot and The Captive, not quite films that are seen as his earlier work. So he wasn't really like in the center. You know, a lot of his films were invited to film festivals and that you kind of, they kind of like knew of him through that, but he wasn't really, I would say, in the center of the conversation compared to, you know, maybe if I got into film like 10 years prior. But yes, The Sweet Hereafter was actually the first film I saw from him and um, absolutely loved it. I actually just rewatched it last night. Uh, it still holds up wonderfully. Um, and then, yeah, I, a few years later, it actually took me to see Exotica because I think of, like you mentioned, the availability wasn't as great. And then, yeah, I, those two I love so much that it actually has taken me a while to like watch his earlier stuff in preparation for this podcast got into. And I will give a shout out to John Fink, who been with the film stage since the early days. And he is one of the biggest um, Anton McGoyan <laughs> fans that I know. Like he, he has been uh, heralding all of his films since uh, since the early days. So he, he really pushed me to see some of these. And it was really eye opening to kind of watch his earlier work and see how his style has kind of evolved in, in certain ways, even in the first like 15 years of his career. And yeah, so in Exotic uh, in particular, you know, you, when you ask, you know, what film should I choose for the podcast? Like there's many, many films that I've seen many, many times that I, you know, from any Malik to like Life of Death and the Colonel Blimp or Young Girls of Rochefort or something. But I decided to go with this one because I saw it back in 2014, had not rewatched it since, but it just stuck in my mind so vividly. It's just one of those films that I like, I was like desperately wanted to rewatch it more than any of the other ones. So this gave me a perfect excuse and uh, it's really, really eye-opening to see it again. So excited to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, as far as a, a Goyen, 
I mean, I know checkered again might be uh, might actually be too kind for some of the the reception for some of those latest films. I, I mean, I certainly I, I heard about the twist of let's say remember sight unseen, for instance. Mm-hmm. So like it it is fascinating looking at that recent time, and um, he just hasn't had a big hit since. This is probably Chloe's is probably the last thing that would qualify as yeah. a hit, despite him having star-studded things. Devil's Knot was uh, Colin Firth and... I don't think it was Kate Winslet, but yeah, Colin Firth and Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, that um, and actually a lot of oh, characters, right. a lot of actors that he that he has worked with before. But yeah, it's kind of it was interesting. Yeah, it feels like Chloe hit that like erotic thriller vibe that like you know obviously Exotica has that in in Spades. Or at least it was marketed that way, and I think the sure. film's a bit, <laughs> bit different than the marketing. But um, but yeah, I think Chloe was kind of hit that perfect. You know, maybe people were heralding it as like a return to form, and then I, I think even though the reviews were mixed, it definitely feels like it made more of a splash than some of the recent ones, which seemed to have premiered at a festival and then got a nice quiet release and that's, that's about it well he, it is funny he's one of those directors though that like it's kind of rare because of his early work is so strong he'll always have kind of a certain cachet and like i'll yeah. always be somewhat curious to see what he does so yeah. is he someone who you've seen some of those latter-day films at film festivals as a lower key selection or something not, like that not the last few but definitely yeah devil's not i do remember seeing and the captive but yeah but i am not caught up with guest of honor which some, some people really really liked with uh, uh david thulis <laughs> Yeah, David Thule was supposed to be kind of yeah. crazy film. So yeah, it is interesting that he just has kind of tried to do brand new things, and uh, which is exciting in some ways, but definitely revisiting it, it. He just has so much control and storytelling finesse in the early ones that it's kind of interesting to see how he's really changed it up. So. Sure. I, I mean, and not only is he constantly changing it up, but even it, it seems like those early films are at the risk of being reductive. Like they can be categorized in working in these very specific, you know, dichotomies of like, for instance, people who are more introverted, but also have a very easy time connecting with each other. Like if it wasn't so carefully written, they'd feel a lot like a collection of traits. So I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm curious, having watched a couple of these earlier films, I caught The Adjuster as well, which is Mm -hmm. a fascinating, you know, other side of the coin with Exotica. What about this film, whether it just be the film itself or specifically in relation to Agoyan speaks to you? Yeah, I I think it's a very much of a cousin with The Sweetheart after, which you know he made that three years after Exotica and um, Sweeter After kind of feels like a more polished and like quote unquote perfect film in the sense of like just how it's like constructed and they're both kind of like puzzle pieces in a way where you know either it's when characters are introduced or different plot points you you have no idea kind of how they might figure in and then it like lays out perfectly um, and it's one of those really interesting storytelling approaches that could like completely fail like I feel like if you just told a story chronologically or just w- didn't withhold as much information it could have felt like a very like standard melodrama like both of these films and I think he just adds so much interesting detail, like in literally every scene that it um, it just makes totally compelling to watch. And yeah, I think, you know, Sweet Hereafter is just obviously because of the kind of central um, narrative point of that film. It, it, it just covered, it's a movie like dripping with grief and like just utter sadness where Exotica obviously has that and quite happily, but there's also like more funny asides and like more interesting asides, like, you know, the character that ha- that is important, like the rare bird eggs and like, you know, there's just like this strange layer to it that I find really interesting. And like, um, we can talk more in depth, but I'll ask Coteus's performance, I think, is like really compelling. And th- that's kind of what draws me to Exotica. I think it's there's just like a sense of mystery to every part of it until obviously you get to the end and like, everything gets unpacked. Um, and then it makes you want to rewatch the whole thing, which is exciting. As we mentioned, we're talking about Adam Nagoyan's uh, Exotica today. And um, it's not the easiest uh, plot to describe to the uninitiated as it involves a number of characters coming together around a single event. I will leave it to our guests to try to oh, thank <laughs> condense you. it. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's a few threads. So yeah, I think off the bat, um, Bruce Greenwood's character, Francis, uh, he's a tax auditor who goes to a uh, Toronto strip club quite regularly called Exotica. While there, he meets uh, Christina, Mira, uh, Mia Kirshner's character. Yes. Um, so far, I've got that right. Yeah, and um, at the strip club. So she's like kind of dresses up her, her like performances in the Google uniform and uh, he kind of becomes somewhat of a father figure to her. Meanwhile, everyone in this film is kind of harboring some deep, dark trauma deep down, um, and which all of which is slowly revealed throughout the movie. But at that strip club as well, there's um, the MC played by Elias Coteus, a uh, great actor, great Canadian actor. And he is this MC who, yeah, kind of 
psychologically probes uh, the audience while <laughs> dances are happening. And it's a very unexpected turn from him in a, in a really exciting way. You kind of learn more as you go on, but there's uh, the owner of the club. Um, and yeah, and then there's another thread with Bruce Greenwood's character um, and Sarah Polly, who's quite much younger in this movie, obviously, than as we know her as the great director now. And yeah, and she babysits for him in strange circumstances where she's playing music at his house and you're not sure why, but it is to be revealed why. Um, and then, yeah, and then there's another subplot with Don McKellar, uh, plays a character named Thomas, who is first introduced, I believe, uh, getting his bag checked at like an airport it's a very interesting set. Um, but yeah, and then you realize he it's revealed he is uh, transporting, illegally transporting these very rare bird eggs. But his character, like the other ones in the film, is very lonely. His father just passed to own a pet shop and now he's taking over. And he he gets audited by Bruce Greenwood's character, Francis. And then all these stories kind of converge um, in interesting ways, not to be spoiled. But um, those, are the, those are the basic threads. I, do you usually vibe or connect with films like this? I mean, I guess mosaic is, is a term that's uh, mm-hmm. that's used sometimes in damning ways. You know, if we talk about something like Crash or maybe some of the films of like Alejandro Gonzalez and Aritu or, or something. But then there's also things like Magnolia, obviously. You know, regardless of execution, is this something you just go for? Yeah, that, I actually thought about that because you, you did pose that great Twitter question where you got a lot of great responses. You know, as you know, like I absolutely adore like the recent films of Terrence Malick, which definitely can be considered mosaics in some ways where there's just a lot of different characters. Obviously, I'm thinking more of like the song to song, um, uh, Night of Cups. Sure. But yeah, I think I like it when it's more um, mysterious. I feel like there's some movies where, and this has been better before, but it feels like it was a financing decision because, oh, you only need an actor on set for like three or four days and then you, <laughs> you know, can have every famous face in there and it feels a little reductive. Whereas it's nice to see a film that like really incorporates many characters in like very thematically interesting ways this is not like movie 43 this is like on the opposite end of the spectrum but um you know someone brought up max ophel's the la ronde um, yeah which is one of my all-time favorites and i can't believe i, I didn't think of that one <laughs> um but it, it is interesting how it's evolved and you know obviously like you've mentioned robert allman is really brought to the forefront which is just really taking it in extreme exciting ways where you, the camera might float over to another character or something like that you know it's just as i've mentioned like this was my first time approaching a goyan he's someone who's mm-hmm. you know reputation really precedes him i, I want to say that i first heard about this through I believe scott tobias's new cult canon at the mm. av club did an installment on this i it was definitely at the av mm. club where i first saw something about this but regardless i mentioned that because i'm finding the especially reading the rhetoric from when this first came out it doesn't feel inaccurate but i feel like it's missing just how singular this feels compared to a lot of mm-hmm. films because i think as much as a lot of these let's just say mosaics for the moment they lend themselves to you know these grandiose connections orbiting around single incidents and things but the thing about the Goyan films I've seen now is that the incidents are almost, they're, they're like secondary. They're conduits mm-hmm. for intimacy. And it's like the word, I remember one of the first notes I wrote watching The Adjuster, especially, which let me tell you, the first five minutes of The Adjuster certainly throws you into the movie with the editing and with just these you know, they're lilting, but they're still sharp enough that you're like, okay, we're just with the whole group of different characters now. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. I, I guess that is what has really struck me is it's like a Goyan is trying to create these opportunities for how can these characters get to know each other immediately? And, you know, sometimes that's with jobs, you know, you have, I mean, you can't get something more perfect other than, you know, maybe a bartender (laughs) or a priest (laughs) than a claims adjuster as someone who has to intimately insert themselves into, uh, you know, people's lives. And, and I think Exotica as well, it's so telling that his inspiration for this movie was just reading about lap dances and the no touching role. <laughs> like, that's all he needed yeah. to say, I'm going to create a movie that uses that closeness and that distance at the same time to refract other things about identity and repression and also desire, sort of. I, I, yeah. I'm trying to figure out the best way to describe this, but and you're totally right, because you look at ads from the time and the one sheets are this is an erotic thriller you know maybe it's not a femme fatale so up in front 
like a basic instinct or fatal attraction. I'm curious, what do you make of that distinction that's kind of attached to this? From a distance. Yeah. If you, if you put yourself in the mind of like a distributor, I, I can totally see why they would market it this way. And, and it actually worked. I mean, it was his most successful film. I, I read a stat where it played in Toronto, like for 25 weeks straight, including like at an IMAX theater there, which is like wild. But yeah, I think like any of the great movies like about this world or even like eroticism in general, there's like a different angle they approach that than just purely titillating. <laughs> and, um, you know, when you first get to the strip club, you know, there's obviously there's shots that are like that will do that. And then as you spend more and more time there, you realize no one seems to be really having a great time <laughs> at all. And um, like you said, like he really cracks open these characters in like really compelling ways that make every scene like it's onion layer peeling back and you kind of realize like where everyone's coming from. And um, even like the Koteas character feels like, you know, he's somewhat of like a shrink, just the way, like, you know, in my life, maybe been to one sure. strip club. Um, <laughs> and that definitely didn't have an experience like this, but it's, I'd just be curious to have someone who's, um, you know, the MC that is like, <laughs> like just trying to probe the mind of everyone there. It's just kind of totally fascinating to me. And, he, you know, he worked with a lot of longtime collaborators here, Paul Sorosi and yeah. cinematography and Michael Donna uh, for the score, but like just the, the, the elegance of the camera moves and the way he's able to just like capture things in such a vivid way. Like, you know, even from the opening shot, the, the credit shot where um, it's just so vividly baked into my mind. Like I said before, like you take a script like this or you take, I guess, the, the central idea and it could just be like a very, very cheesy melodrama. Yeah, I read an interview where he mentioned, um, I think he went to an American strip club and there's an inspiration there and then he then he was audited for taxes as well. And that's where I got inspiration there. But it's, it, it's just so funny. Like he just decided to like smash these two things together. And then like, I just very curious his script writing process and actually what he does to just make things so, um, you know, just this interesting like withholding puzzle nature of, of his movies and it really seems like you know one if one scene felt false or one scene felt like he was giving too much information it could really just like pull the rug off the whole thing uh, and, he, and he really doesn't do that and even like you know i mentioned earlier like different character introductions like each character really is very boldly introduced and um the one scene that that is so interesting to me is the sarah polly scene where you first meet them in the car and like sure there's no pretext of like her character and you think like oh is it something like sexual like i think you last see him in a strip club and it's and then it like turns into something like really tender and like insanely sad and just like the way he's able to do that coin flip is just fascinating that scene too yeah. is definitely like it's certainly prodding some of those assumptions that you're having because even the man he's not doing anything weird but he could be coded to be seen as a john the way that he's placed right next to this door at this gas station like if there is anything i'd say about this in relation to erotic thrillers it's that it will dabble in some of those like emotional milieus like it's like okay how do we use that extreme desire which in other movies often leads to very like neo-noir drama type thing but in mm. here it's really just it's like a, a series of tiny explosions with these characters i do think it can be seen as a thriller in the sense that like it is thrilling to watch each scene like curious what's going to happen it's like you mentioned there's not guns and shadows and, and like there's those neo-noir elements that you kind of expect but but you feel like at any point something couldn't happen like that and the fact that going really stays true to form in the sense of like bringing it all back to like a character's journey and not so much trying to add in these kind of additional elements really helps just ground everything and obviously the eroticism is is there somewhat but then it kind of fades away as you learn more about the characters yeah i'd be curious to know like if there were walkouts or anything like that but i think i really do think like the way he tells the story is so gripping that if, i don't think you're, you would be off put by what he's showing you're more like oh this is not what i bought a ticket for but i want to keep watching you know <laughs> It is really interesting to think about this in relation to eroticism and, and sex, because it's, I wouldn't say that it's, you know, drained of the sexuality in the way that, you know, like Eyes Wide Shut is, for instance, or these yeah, films yeah, like yeah. expressly about repression or like, I, I mentioned that because, you know, I did keep hearing the word sexy. I did keep hearing the word erotic. Yeah. And it's, it's more the idea that like sex is physical in the sense of like forbidden touch or something unexpected that comes into an interaction with, with someone. It's so different than what I expect there because then it's also so clearly transactional. I think I counted maybe a half a dozen times with different characters where mm. someone hands someone money and then they hand it back. I mean, I think that's particularly interesting to get into 
spe- specifics here is uh, Don yeah. McKellar's character, the pet shop owner we previously mentioned named Thomas, who is, yes, also smuggling illegal bird eggs. Mm-hmm. But he's also someone, he's really coded in fascinating ways because I feel like in a more modern film, they would place this in a more explicitly queer way. The, the lead up to it, I think, is interesting because you see, you know, obviously you're introduced with his pet shop stuff, but then you learn about like, you know, the the opera exchange. And then like in only a few shots, like I think a going like lays everything on the table that you need to know, like you see exchange with the tickets and you just see like, you know, the two kind of reaction shots. And then like, I love the scene like in the opera where they're just kind of looking at each other and it's just all about like everyone in this movie is kind of like looking for some sort of connection. And like for him, sure. it's just kind of, he wants to spend time with someone, like some, this person. And, and you're not sure if it's if it's romantic because he kind of is also like seems like a quite a lonely person like there's no one ever at a shop and like he's just kind of by himself and his father passed away and he's kind of just taking over the shop but then to Goyen's um, credit like when there is actually a romantic scene or like a, a sex scene it's like shot very erotically and like yes. very interestingly but also like somewhat funny like with, with the hair on his chest it's just like disarming you're you feel many different things at once so it's, it's a really interesting you know he tells the line very well it's very interesting because with more self-conscious, more abstract dialogue, I think this would feel kind of obtuse, but it's only obtuse in the sense that you again, never expect these characters, yet you can't divine what their relationship is. You know, you know. sometimes I was like, oh, is this a partner? Is this a sibling? Is this a complete stranger? Yeah. And all three of those possibilities we kind of see in the film, honestly, of mm-hmm. characters who connect to over these things. I was say, even the way he does flashbacks are quite interesting. Like, you know, with, with Sweeter after, like, the flashback, is it's very obvious that it's a flashback in some senses because it's, like, this this incident, uh, you know, with the bus. And But in this film, you know, you see Elias Cotea's character, you know, walking in the grass. You're not quite sure. And then you kind of realize what it's leading towards. But the way he does it is just, it's so seamless that you're like, oh, could this have been happening, like, when he's not at work or, like, what's, what's kind of happening? It's just, it's very interesting the way he kind of weaves that in. I would be super curious how much, you know, reading on, reading a script versus like the editing process to see how much he fine-tuned like tweaking certain things i mean it does feel very controlled and like he knows exactly what he wants to get but there's just so many you know like false notes that could be had (laughs) that he skips i'd be very curious to how he wants his performers to act together like i could very much see him being the type of director where he's like i want you guys to spend time with each other i want you to get to know each other it's not necessarily going to be in the text of the script or maybe vice versa your character is never supposed to meet until this moment. I don't want you to know each mm-hmm. other. I want you to be as taken aback when that happens as the other person. I keep trying to push back from trying to see these films as math equations, because on some level, with the way these characters work, this lends itself to that. But it does a huge disservice to, you know, whether we want to point to a counter of someone who I don't think does well, like Inaritu's Babel, for instance, is a film that every gesture, every instance feels so overdetermined, like you're just inching your way to a finish line. And I think the weird thing about, especially Exotica, is I think they could have done this film even without the final reveal, per se. And I think that's a compliment to the film that this could be more loose and wouldn't need to be, or wouldn't need to reveal exactly why these characters come together. In some way, like, that connection was the most, like, cinematically familiar thing of this whole movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I agree. Because I, I, I think the end note is nice, like the way, and he he did a really good um, 25th anniversary interview with like BFI, Sight and Sound. I highly recommend reading that. But um, he, I think you mentioned in there that he shot the actual ending where it's the um, the babysitter of, of his daughter when she was still alive. And he shot it not knowing it was going to be the ending, actually, and thought it was going to fit in the movie in a different way. But I do agree the scenes before that, where which I mentioned there's no guns in this movie, but there actually there is a gun. But it's, I, I kind of almost forgot it. But yeah, that, that does feel 
feel the most like, okay, now we're like going to tie things together. And if you've seen like the social graphics where people are like, you know, with no one films or something like, here's how everything connects together. And like the fun thing about this is like, yes, he's having fun with the, the chronology of the story and the narrative pieces. And like, but it never feels like as things are revealed, it's, there's still like so much subtext going on that it's not like, okay, now I can move on and, and like, just think about something else in the story. It feels yeah. like it stays true, true to the characters throughout. And even seeing like I wrote Bruce Greenwood, who I love in this movie, he's so good. Yes. Um, but his scene in the car where he's like that feeling you get sometimes where you didn't ask to be brought on this world. And then um, he's like, now that you're here, who's asking you to stay? And like, you know, it's such a well-written scene and like gets to so much. And it's, you know, it's an interesting performance because he says so much with just his eyes and like at the, at the strip club that even when he goes to like talk more about his life, like it's still so well-written that it doesn't feel like uh, in a YouTube film where it's like, okay, let's let's add more layers of depression on this. It, it feels like really true to his character and like, and just done with like a light touch rather than really trying to hammer things home. Yeah, there's an interesting like continuity to the characters in this that like despite them like continually doing these very spontaneous things there is a almost like a again to go back to this math equation thing I'm trying not to do <laughs> like this almost catalog of actions that would make sense but then you have these variables that are very like rational and based around common sense like when Bruce Greenwood as an auditor when he goes to Thomas's pet store and says that he's going to be there for however much time is required. It's, it's kind of funny because Thomas is like, do you think you'll be done by the end of the day? And he's like, it could be the end of the day or it could be the end of the week. <laughs> like it's something very interesting there because it makes complete sense. Whatever happens within that interaction, it has both these interactions that were required and aren't forced and I, it was interesting because I was reading, uh, uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum is a, is a big fan of Agoyan's work, but he is mm. someone who prefers the er earlier films and he uh, finds- Even earlier than Exotica? Yes. So uh, he even thought okay. the adjuster Exotica and the, the Sweet Hurry After were all a little bit too slick. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I, I, well, I can definitely see that. I mean, he, I watched all of the films previous to Exotica before. So Next of Kin, Family Viewing, Speaking Parts, The Adjuster, and Calendar, which Calendar is a little bit of an outlier. It's like playing with some documentary elements. Adam McGoyan is playing the lead. He's in it. Calendar? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, him and his wife. I mean, I will say, like, his style isn't definitely not fully formed from the first movie, but his, his themes that he wants to explore definitely are. There's a lot to do with, like, finding your own family when you don't like your own. And a lot of this, like, you know, sense of loneliness and, like, searching for a connection in a world where it's quite hard to. It was, I think, you know, Next of Kin and Family Viewing are very interesting, but they definitely feel more, you know, not as polished, which I could see if you just solely are attracted to his themes, then yes, you would like those a lot. Speaking Parts is the one that feels like, okay, now he really, like, found an interesting groove. Yeah, definitely recommend that. One and I believe that's the first time he actually worked with, uh, yeah, the cinematographer and composer. I believe, uh, oh no, not, not the composer, but the cinematographer. And so that's clearly why it kind of has a whole different look. That's a really interesting movie. Speaking parts set in like a partially in a hotel, and uh, a person uses his front uh, as a hotel custodian to be a gigolo by his female uh, supervisor. And then there's subplot with Anton McGoin's wife, uh, Arsenika Kanajan, uh, who's obsessed with like renting um, these videotapes in which th this person plays like an extra. And then like, there's all these very interesting, cool, strange things. We are not sure what is like a videotape or what is real life. Yeah, quite a good movie. And, you know, I would say next to kind of family viewing are very like, they lay out what this plot is from early on and, and it doesn't really evolve incredibly much from that. But like speaking parts is the first movie where it really feels like, okay, let me play with like the viewers a bit and like really like play with their sympathies and what, where they think the story might be going. Um, and then obviously, you know, the adjuster we talked about, um, but calendar is also quite interesting. And it's, it is just wild that he made, you know, a little over 10 years he made all these kind of really fascinating films. Yeah, and I think with Exotic, I was, I was brought up a few pieces, but I really would recommend Girish Shambu's Senses of Cinema piece, which I think is like the yeah. best writing on the film, period. And he, he goes through a lot of different motifs and different connections, but I really liked, he kind of elucidates the use of like these one-way mirrors throughout the movie and like and this, yeah. this aspect of voyeurism. You know, we see Elias Coteus behind kind of these mirrors at the strip club. Then we see, you know, someone observing Don McKellar's character getting like an airport bag check 
And I just think it's interesting. A lot of these characters feel like they're in their own world, kind of removed from the world, even though they're trying to live in it. And it feels like with Elias Cote's character, that's very you know obvious because he's kind of perched up above everyone in, um, at the strip club. But yeah, no, I just think it, it adds this like other layer that's not too obvious and he's not trying to like push it in every scene, but he just kind of peppers it throughout and make, makes it interesting. He did. He also said, I read an interview, he wanted to structure this story like a striptease. Yes, an emotional is, striptease. <laughs> Yeah, which is interesting considering like the utter tragedy like at the climax of the movie, or I guess when it, what the climax is revealed to be with Francis's daughter and with his family, you know, it's, so it's kind of interesting to put it in those terms. But uh, but yeah, I do love that uh, right near the end, you know, right before Thomas and Christina, you know, where he tries to essentially violate the unwritten rule to get thrown out, uh, mm. you know, to set things mm-hmm. in motion. I do love how just a random detail, Zoe's drinking milk. While sitting behind the one-way mirror. (laughs) She's watching this lap dance and drinking milk just kind of solemnly. Exotica as a a whole is a a really interesting study. It's like like a space. It, It has that desperation and... There's almost like a randomness to it, which is not to say like that the ambiance doesn't match or anything. But there's just so much going on but it feels so small as a space. Like all the tables seem too close together. I mean, you have Elias. Uh, Cody is playing this MC who's, I would love to hear him do some ASMR, some audiobooks. But as far as an MC <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. at a club, he probably slides too much from seductive to sleepy <laughs> than you'd think they'd <laughs> yeah. want. I feel like the Leonard Cohen song kind of sets the stage for the whole, the whole movie. Everybody knows. Obviously. Everybody knows, yeah, Canada shout out. But yeah, very setting all the uh, Canada tropes right off the bat. I think they did build, this wasn't a strip club before. Like they built the whole set, I believe, which, you know, obviously I think you would want to considering all the intricate stuff with where Cotes is sitting and like the back room and stuff. I feel like spatially, they're not super interested in kind of defining it in obvious ways in the sense of you have that first floor and Greenwood's always going to the same table. And other than that, then there's a table on the second floor. So it, it is very interesting that it's really just like two, you know, kind of small areas of this large I guess two areas and then the console for Elias Cotius's character. You said you've seen this film quite a few times. Why do you return to it? Yeah, well, I, so I saw it, I think 2014 was the first time. And then I actually had not, I've wanted to rewatch it since, you know, forever. And then when I was thinking of movies, like I, I made the list up and I was like, oh, this is out of all the movies for some, whatever reason, this is the one I actually want to rewatch the most. So I, that's why I picked it. Just so I had an excuse to rewatch it and talk about it. So it's, you know, this is my second viewing uh, recently, okay. but it is, yeah, I think, you know, it, it definitely opened up more like obviously knowing the ending um, but also it was a bit hazy because it had been like almost 10 years since I had seen it for the first time so I still like sure. couldn't predict everything but yeah I, I remember being a very like green movie is like the, the, the main texture of it like and that, that comes back you know yeah. watching it a bit with like and then different locations with it especially with like the fish tanks and then other things and yeah I think it's, it is one of those movies that like it, it rewards repeat viewings like his best work and yeah what I remember most from the first viewing was Coteus but then rewatching it it was definitely like Bruce Greenwood's performance that really like struck me more just because there's such a sadness and even like the way with uh, Christina Mia Kirshner's character like you know they're two very like kind of hurt people and you think it might be kind of sexual at the beginning but he really ends up being more like you know a father figure and I will say it's even though it is a puzzle box itself there, there's so much um, left unsaid in the movie that it's it is really like the feeling that you get when you're watching these scenes and the way the camera glides like around a character or something like that that like sticks in your brain is that's why I think um, Gira Shambu's essay is so great because it's not a super long one it just kind of goes through you know all these great motifs but it's like, I don't think you can necessarily write a book about this movie, but you, you could draw a lot from it. I would like love to talk to like the cinematographer about like his approach and, and that, that, the formal style, which is not going to take away from that script itself. But I just, he elevates it so much with kind of the approach here. I kept kind of going back and forth about the word like passive and active characters. I, and I was trying to think about, I, I guess, again, you, you can speak to the contradictions here as these characters are often forced into the same environment, even if, you know, it's not uncomfortable, but it's just required. Like there's no way for these encounters to not happen in, in a sense. So I guess in a way that does also put it in kind of the mosaic tradition. I mean, the camera work and also the body language, not just uh, Mia Kirshner, who does, you know, it, it plays a dancer and is regularly giving lap dances and things while she's having these heart-to-hearts in, in a sense. But you do have all these other characters 
who are just constantly in motion, whether they're thinking, you know, whether they're very present in the moment or waiting to especially react to things. And I, I think that's what really works for me in a way that a film like this, like actually generally worries me or, you know, what can happen with something like Nolan, where each character becomes not only an avatar for the plot, but also here's this theme. We're going to set a counter to it here and we'll have friction. And then we're good. <laughs> but there's something about the camera work. I mean, even coming from the adjuster, this is a lot less restless of a, of a movie. It's a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's got some uh, languor to how it moves. Every once in a while, you'll get, you know, some ostentatious uh, camera movement or these really vivid, vibrant environments. But compared to even something like The Adjuster, which like the opening scenes is like four different environments in a row <laughs> where it's just starbursts of color, like just bricks that are, you know, magenta and uh, just this parking lot where it's, you know, mostly gray and black cars and then just some random, again, like hot pink. And it's just, it's very interesting that this movie that is about spectacle, there's a lot of it that feels pretty anonymous in a way I wasn't expecting, uh, given how much this revolves around the club. I, I'd kind of be curious to actually check how much of the runtime is in the club. I feel like it wouldn't actually be that long. And I feel, I feel like a lot of the camera work, like, because if there's such a talented cinematographer at the hand, like, it could be more ostentatious if they wanted it to be, but it really does feel, like, defined by whatever the character is going through. Um, I think I read an interview where he mentioned, like, he wanted the camera to feel like, uh, like a missing person's, like, perspective, like, because, mm. you know, with tied with like the flashbacks a bit everything feels defined by a character but yet it still has this like kind of slick style which i think can be off-putting for some like rosenbaum i was looking at a few more reviews that i found it interesting i think mike d'angelo calls it one of uh, his top five films of all time which, mm. which is uh obviously he's quite a hard uh, <laughs> a tough critic so that that is interesting yeah um and it is i will say the fun fact i think it's the only film to win a prize at can and uh the avn awards <laughs> <laughs> It won, okay. it, won, it won Best Alternative Adult Film at the AVN Awards. I was looking up its prizes. I was like, okay, that has to be a history making in, in some ways. What else was nominated that year? I, I, <laughs> I'm definitely going to look into this. I, I'm going to comb through the AVN Awards. I mean, that's what's obviously next for intermission. It's just a, a, a long series on the AVN uh, <laughs> Award winners. Yes. Yeah. Love probably won that. Actually, I really hope yeah, Love didn't say. win that. I, I think there is something... I mean this in a, in a good way, but there there are certain parts of this one, I would say, that are not even ridiculous in an absurdist way. And I would say that was very much the adjuster. Mm -hmm. I was surprised how much this was a more traditional melodrama at times. And I think it's partly yeah. Michael Dana's excellent work, which like goes from this very like contemporary classic piano to a lot of these... I believe it's Egyptian instruments is, is the thing he wanted to mm -hmm. focus on. And he he regularly does a lot of global instrumentation. But there is a lot of this that is a lot more exaggerated than I expect. I, I mean, I guess it's some of the yeah. some of the conversations here. Some of these characters, like, you know, they're navel cases <laughs> in a sense. Like they are so inside their head, but they're vocalizing even the most like abstract subjective experience of like mm -hmm. a moment i will say first yeah the score definitely just keeps you off balance it's not what you expect at all in any turn um and yeah i think there's definitely i was well i'll say this i feel like nowadays it's very common for like right now it's popping horror but like you know where it's really about trauma or something and like that is, that is the term it's used for everything and it really feels like this could also describe that movie but the way it doesn't dwell in it as much like it, it does in the sense of like you said like the way the characters just appear in every scene and, are, and the way they look at the camera and stuff yes but it's like because there's all these just strange touches throughout it really doesn't kind of revel in it in a way that's interesting um it just kind of coats the whole movie and there's like a layer that's just like bleeding through everything but it's not like this scene is about trauma like there's no, not none of none of that really which is is like really refreshing i think compared to some you know horror films nowadays all the meta metaphorical stuff in this film you know the fact that he's like harboring these weird eggs is like yes it's like an exotic creature and like it ties in the, with this notion of like exoticism in like different forms and just like looking at another person's life and all 
these men in the strip club, I feel like they're like wanting to get out of their lives. And it's, it's this exotic world that, that then like, as soon as you open the doors or something, it's, especially like when he gets thrown out, thrown out of the club, it's a great scene where he's just like thrown out. And like, I feel like the music fades and it's kind of like you're hit with the rush of real life. Yeah. And, uh, but it does, I will say the whole movie though, does definitely have like kind of a dreamy quality where you're just definitely tied to the characters, but you're just kind of floating through this weird. And I think the music is a huge part of that. And just the way the camera moves is, is a huge part of that. But like, there's definitely this dreamlike quality throughout the whole thing that like when you talk about it being about trauma it feels on another plane almost like he's more interested in the mysteries and in many ways not just in the mystery of the plot but like a mysteriousness around the characters and having them you know not state everything right out front about what what's going on in their lives when you say navel gazing i see it more in like it's not so, even so much what they say but it's just like you get a certain vibe for all of them yeah you know, i would never want sure. to really hang out with any of the characters here like but yeah i love this movie and i love to rewatch it so i don't know what that says about me a lot of this is just uh, amorphous and kind of hard to describe and i i mean it's funny you mentioned the i definitely i thought about trauma and horror I, I guess it was the strange timing that i saw david cronenberg's crash last month and then i saw body double about a week and a half ago and both of these were oddly kind of instructive in terms of like helping to understand this movie as well. Like the terminology that I used when I watched uh, Crash is it was like emotional exhibitionism. Obviously pain is, is a big part of their relationship to pleasure, but it's also, it's also as much about showing off that pain and like uh, flaunting it. And then De Palma might actually be just the complete opposite <laughs> of going in because uh, his characters so badly want this connection, this possibility, you know, for the dreamy kiss out of nowhere to make sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and yeah, when, when he does erotic thriller, he really, really wants it to be erotic, too. <laughs> for most of his films. Do you even see this uh, movie in relation to things like desire and like being gravitated to people? Well, in the sense of desire, it's, it's, it's almost like the yearning for it and not like the actual fulfillment of it because think of the scene with Don McKellar and then the guy that he kind of brings home after the, the opera and like it's the other guy that's kind of like doing all the work so to speak like there and like it, it feels like it's almost overwhelming to him that he's actually had this human connection and I can see that you know some of the other characters as well and like the way they it kind of reaches a climax in, in a sense they don't fully pursue what they wanted so it's almost like they're, they're kind of caught in this constant state of yearning and that's why I think I do return to the film because it's like a perpetual cycle that like you'll never find the answer to kind of idea do you find that comparable to something like latter day malik like that recent quadrilogy that trilogy yeah is it quadrilogy yeah, yeah yeah i mean that it is funny because i like you know i really did like a hidden life but it's very concrete in the sense of this you know obviously it's telling a historical story so it's it has to get some things right um sure <laughs> but it's very much like a more classically certainly not formally but structure wise very classical in the way it tells the story and that's which was funny when people were praising hidden life as like a return to form where i was like no like these, <laughs> these the films of four is like are is like the most fascinating work he's done because it's, it's him totally stripping away any conventions and like constantly roving searching camera like always restless never quite finding the answer for anything but just like showing like hundreds of different scenarios and it's not an ideal film to finance or, or get people to watch but like it, i just find it totally fascinating that it's just you know more of like film as memory as like you're just looking back at uh, these glimpses of someone's life and a million different angles and as someone who i think Song of Song is one of his best movies. Like, I know I'm alone, but... Um, but I don't think I, you're I, alone. I, I know a no, bunch of alone. people. Okay. I just think yeah. you're all a little bit insane, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, I'll take that. With him, it's just like any, literally name a single one of his movies and on any single day, it could be my favorite. So, <laughs> But I, I just think like that his later work is just so undervalued. And like to the wonder, like, because that was like the breaking point of him going from Street of Life to that, it's like people weren't expecting that style, but like it's more reserved than like his what he would do later. And it's like really like heartbreaking and ten a tender movie, I think, and like one of the best movies about love and and the failures of love and it's really lovely so I, let's do intermission part two on that <laughs> <laughs> be happy 50th birthday to ben affleck there we go <laughs> I, I think i'm bringing those up because i do think there's a really interesting question of how much you want to read into some of these relationships I, I mean i already spoke a little bit about how things seem to exist outside of the plot and aren't necessary i mean when you're talking about for instance the character zoe who's the club owner played by uh, arseni mm. kanjian and christina and mia kirshner and eric who is the elias Codius character we've mentioned multiple times mm. there was no need for to have 
Eric impregnate Zoe after a relationship <laughs> with Christina. Yeah, no. But that type of thing is, it, it seems like it's just pervasive in his films. And I, I guess when I w- first brought up the word ridiculous, I have never seen a movie that stacks so many tragedies <laughs> in the twist of yeah, this I, film. <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting because I feel like now that it's like formal chops aren't up to speed, it's like those things that could have been rendered disastrously early on. Like he he always had this like level of like, okay, let me just like go to 11. But I think just the way it, they feel subdued and like not so much the sweeter after that. There's a, a few things there that are a little extreme, but mo- and mostly it's like pretty reined in. But yeah, with here, yeah, definitely. I, I will say that like probably relationship with characters is like the least interesting to me, even though I love Coteus's character. But I just think it, it feels a little more shoehorned in if there was one negative qualm for the movie. Well, now we can't release the, you, you said something negative about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Movies shouldn't be perfect. They, they should have, they should be interesting, more interesting than perfect. So was this something that did fall into place with that, I, I suppose, final twist? You weren't maybe asking what's the point, but I, I'm curious whether the twist and the structure is uh, yeah. is pivotal to your relationship with it. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's definitely, what I liked about it, I think I will say is like, there's scenes in the movie, like Sarah Polly's character at the end where he, where he tells Francis. Francis's brother, Harold, where yeah. she's like, I've just been babysitting for him, but no one's home. That kind of like thing where she's definitely like laying it on thick of like what, what that is, which is not, you know, it's fine, but it, it definitely feels like, you know, Anton McGoin being like, all right, let me like lock all these pieces into place. But like I said before, it's like, I like that the ending note is like a pretty graceful note to end on with you see the, the footage that was captured before. And then you kind of see, you know, his ride in the car and like, you know, you, you learn a bit more, but it's not like hitting over the head of like these characters' journeys. It's, it, I like how it's like kind of a flashback that's just like putting a little more of an imprint into what that character of Francis and like you learn a little bit more about him but it's not like you feel like his soul's revealed and you know everything that he's going through like you, you see like the happier times and like there's just like a kind of a more elegant graceful note to end on that like the gun could have gone off they could have you know someone someone could have died it could have been like that kind of ending and I just feel like but yeah I, it's, I, I just think it's, it's a pretty lovely ending and uh, bittersweet do you have any feelings about how technology figures into this film whether it's um, I, I mean you do have at least at the end you have that key scene mediated through the camcorder and then using that to go outside yeah there's a lot of um motifs and and imagery of like it's interesting to him like just it's it's very brief where he he uses that footage in this movie like it's just you know sort of strange snippets so i think i really appreciated that it didn't feel like he was you know amped up too much in that that arena in terms of other uses of technology in the movie, I don't... I guess it's more the adjuster, as I think about yeah. it, because the sensor... Well, it was funny, even the, um, like, the auditing, like, the way he, you know, he has, like, a notepad. It feels like, I don't know, the way he's doing it, it feels like it's, like, the longest. Like, he has a notepad, he's just writing notes. Like, it feels like like there's no sort of, like, documents or forms. I don't know, like, it just seems insane, like, the way he's doing it. I'm like, oh, okay, like, of course it would take you more than a day to do this. Um, yeah. But, hey, that, that was the mid-90s. I don't know, Wild West out there. <laughs> there, there wasn't advanced computer technology that could, like, audit you in three seconds so yeah the whole transactional nature of that relationship is fascinating too with where they kind of knew what he was doing all along and then they uh francis uses dominic keller's character um to go back into the club and it's just like different kind of transactional relationship from the other ones we've seen in the movie thus far i mean since there are so many characters here i mean who were the mm-hmm. ones who kind of immediately spoke to you you know on first watch definitely elias Cote's character just because he's i i I think i had seen him in more movies before so i kind of like was excited for the role so like thin red line and and whatnot is this before thin red line yeah yeah thin red line yeah thin red line is 90 97 98 97 okay this is a few years before yeah potentially shot before now because of production (laughs) you you know it could be a shot at the same time um yeah, so he, yeah, I think him and then, but like upon rewatch for sure, Bruce Keenwood's character is, is kind of, I would say, like more of the emotional center, whereas Koteas has some fun. He's just so compelling as, you know, he's a more verbal character than, than Greenwood's uh, character. So I think more interesting on an early watch, but I think, you know, Greenwood's clearly the emotional center based on how the film ends, <laughs> for sure. Is, is it going, you think, someone who still has like, a, you know, influence over contemporary filmmakers? Are there filmmakers you've seen mm-hmm. now? Where you think there's a potential strain of his identity or his preoccupations? 
Hmm, that is a great question. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd have to imagine it, it's interesting the way like influence works and then the sense of like directors that are influenced because it takes, you know, 10 to 15 years for a director probably sure. to get their project off the ground from when they see them. So I think like in the last 10 years, there's probably been a lot of directors that like saw that earlier work and was influenced. Um, I mean, he's, he's definitely someone that you, based on like the discussion we've had, like you, you can watch his movies and take away the wrong lessons and like try to ape what he's doing and not have kind of the, the formal finesse and like kind of fumble with it. So and I mean, there's 10 movies at Sundance every year that, that are kind of like <laughs> uh, trying to do what he's doing, but in different ways. But yeah, I think now I think his cachet has kind of lessened. There's probably not as many that are drawn to him. But I, I mean, both Exotic and Street Raptor feel like movies that could not have been made outside of the time and not, not because of any like technical limitations or anything, but because of just the way they feel so much like 90s movies where it's like this boom of the independent mm. scene being able to be like a little more adventurous with like your screenplays and you know not to say like he's like doing a tarantino or something but like i I feel like in the 90s was like the peak experimentation of like okay how can we like mess up the structure of this film and like still on like a grounded budget pull it off so i feel like he hit at the right time and that's why now like it's probably harder for him to kind of get you know he still makes movies quite frequently but i bet it's not you know he probably doesn't have the same resources as before you mentioned uh, exotica is set in toronto and i guess one thing we haven't really talked about that much is uh, a goyan's relationship to canada which uh, looms pretty large I, i think he is associated with the toronto new wave which is just kind of you know maybe only a few household names uh you know don mckeller uh, oddly enough, who does play Thomas here? Yeah, he's included in that. And I know, I know people really like Last Night. I believe it's Don McKellar. Is am, am yeah. I thinking? Yeah. And then uh, Patricia Rosema, who's an independent director, who mm-hmm. I feel like is still doing work. But yeah. It, yeah. Bruce McDonald, yeah, that's another one. Yes, Bruce McDonald. Yeah, it's yeah. it is just interesting because it, it does certainly seem like he's one of the biggest Canadian directors, other than Cronenberg. You know, <laughs> obviously. I was gonna say yeah. Cron- Cronenberg kind of like rose before him, but I think, you know, somewhat of the peak of their careers. I guess, you know, Cronenberg was a bit earlier, but Cronenberg was still making fascinating movies in the 90s. And like you meant, like this is definitely a great double feature with Crash, his Crash. So um, Cote-esque connection as well with that. But yeah, yeah, he definitely, it's not like he try to escape Canada like he still makes movies set there like if he still has clear love for the location I mean obviously with some of his most recent work he's kind of expanded a bit but yeah I, I don't think actually in Exotica they actually mentioned Toronto at all right I don't think it's ever brought up I don't think so I guess that does remind me because he really does kind of have a almost a repertory set of actors at this point so oh for sure yeah especially now that you've watched some more in particular I'm curious whether it's been a strange experience seeing these actors repeatedly come up even you have someone like Maury Chaikin uncredited roles oh yeah is that something that you know in your recent experience when you've been watching those has it been something you associate with your relationship with a Goyan to a sense about those returning actors yeah, obviously rewatching Sweet Hair after, right after Exotica, like seeing, you know, Bruce Greenwood, who's quite a different character. Still like in Sweet Hair after, he's definitely harboring a lot of trauma and guilt. And then yes. Sarah Polly, big time. But yeah. uh, and, and his wife, you know, is definitely throughout all the movies. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just nice to see like kind of the returning faces. And I mean, watching Exotica, you're like, oh, wow, this is just like Canada's finest. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and Maury Chaikin is great. I mean, he's such a presence, like it's wild. Uh, oh, I had a terrible, a terrible realization where i saw his face and i'm like what do i know him from he is the harvey weinstein stand-in on entourage <laughs> oh all right there you go <laughs> i mean he fits that bill i guess you could say he does he um, does <laughs> I, I, I was hoping it was a more prestigious thing i knew him from but that's how that goes <laughs> Uh, something I like to do with the show, as you know, sure. is if someone liked this, you know, we've talked about a number of Agoyan films. I, I know you probably have the strongest positive opinion for Sweet Air After, which it, it sounds like you have strong yeah. affection for as well. But where would you suggest people go, whether it be other films, other media, etc., if they like Exotica? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, I think in terms of a going specifically, definitely Sweet After is a great double feature, but I also think Speaking Parts is quite fascinating. Just, I think, you know, the strangeness of both of those films, definitely. There's, there's a kinship there. Um, and, and The Adjuster as well, which I need to rewatch. Um, I liked, but I think you liked it more, so I, I need to say it one more time. <laughs> 
And then, yeah, I mean, I brought up the Cronenberg's Crash, which as another Canadian production, which I think is it's another movie which is built on this kind of eroticism that, that has definitely darker undertones. Um, did it win an AVN? It crash? did, actually. I was looking at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that didn't, yeah. I mean, that's uh, two really good movies. So I'm very curious what the rest of the I, I, AVN yeah. apparently uh, tastemaker. <laughs> it did, yeah, it did win. So I guess that's not, because it also won the jury prize at Cannes. So I guess it, it is yeah, not the, the first two, two years earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, I'm trying to think in terms of other erotic thrillers. I mean, we brought a lot up on the podcast. Sure. Um, I mean, there's stuff like you know, Closer, and I don't know. I feel like Closer is someone in this vein, maybe. Eyes wide shut, and we brought that up for sure. Like we should link to your your Twitter thread where people kind of brought up the mosaic yeah. films. But um, yeah, I'm watching Tolerance on loop now. Uh, no. <laughs> so, like shortcuts, I guess that that's like yeah. the really great. Yeah, I think those are the ones that kind of come to mind the most. I oh, I, I will say actually another one, uh, Fastbender films. I think. Oh, um, I mean, there's probably a lot there, but. Um, yeah, I don't even know which ones I would recommend, but I did. I think I read a review where someone mentioned that I could see that kind of like transaction and and just like there's a certain eroticism to some of those movies that definitely have there's more <laughs> thematic darkness behind it. It's it's interesting. I mean, a, a marriage of Eva Braun is you know oh, something yeah. for instance. You know, that's a transaction of necessity in a in a sense. You know, in yep, a yep. it's pure survival. Which yep. I again, that's what I think I really like about the transactions in uh, Agoyne's films is it's just, it's not, there's not urgency there. The urgency is through like emotion and the possibility that, you know, someone will say something to hurt the other or will do something to ruin whatever they have going in a sense. Mm -hmm. There's just some great, like, uh, just kind of individual lines. Like I, I really love uh, Bruce Greenwood's character towards the beginning saying, I'm not that boring, am I? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which yeah. like definitely also yeah. plays into further the idea that he's seeing Polly's character in something other than a, a babysitting context. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> I, do you have any thoughts about... Greenwood's almost savior complex with Kirshner and, uh, you know, him calling her his angels kind of a fascinating, I feel like you would normally see something, well, it particularly reminded me actually of bringing up the dead. Uh, the relationship mm-hmm. between Greenwood and Kirshner reminded me of Nicolas Cage and... Not Arquette, yeah. Yeah, because I mean that we touched on a bit, but the kind of like the father figure of uh, sorts with Bruce Greenwood's character and, and her character. I think her character you, is even more mysterious than Bruce Greenwood's character for a while because you're not sure, you know, she enjoy any of this. Like, is she? <laughs> what is she getting out of this? And you do learn a little bit more of her backstory, and it kind of unfolds there. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting because from you know her introduction with Coteas, like introducing her as like this incredibly sexy dance, which like she doesn't even like show that much skin that you would expect at the strip club. Like, it feels like actually more reserved. And then, like, you wonder how that might play into their relationship, like where Bruce Greenwood's not even looking for that. So he's probably attracted to that because it's just like, OK, I can just talk to this woman. And like you said, that's kind of savior complex where I can just kind of like help her and learn more about her, um, which is looking for this kind of companionship. Because it is, it is funny talking about like the titillating nature of the movie. Like there's nudity for sure, like, like the introduction of the club, but then it like kind of all goes away by, by the end of the movie. And certainly with her character, it's not like he doesn't play that up at all. It is, I mean, it's definitely an interesting relationship. She's just like shirtless by matter of fact, by the end. It's kind of, yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating in that strip club. I, you know, I wouldn't usually ask this, but the one thing I would say is as much as we're talking about all of these relationships, do you see these as relationships that continue after the credits? Or do you Mm -hmm. think that these are resets? In a sense, because you did talk about cycles and and loops. So I'm just curious whether you think these characters are, I see it as doomed, doomed to repeat this. Yeah. Or be, or be, continue to be stuck. Yeah, it, it doesn't feel like there's a ton of closure there. Like, obviously, there's that kind of climax. And, you know, I don't think um, Bruce Greenwood's character is going back to the best job, <laughs> uh, unless he kind of disguises himself. But we'll see. Toronto's not a ma- massive city, so he might have to move. <laughs> but um, she had a whole but, list of other places he could go, apparently. That, that's that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I know. It does feel like I wonder 
if the flashbacks and at the end is Egoyan's way of like showing you a hint of that Bruce Greenwood's character did get some closure. Cause like, even though it's a flashback, maybe he's saying like, I'm showing you this, but this is what also like, is he's thinking about as well. Like he's thinking about this kind of like bittersweet moment and not just all about the trauma. And so that, and that's why I mean, it ends on like a slightly positive note, but um, like you said, if you, if they cut all that out, then I think it would be more of a downbeat ending for sure, but not as downbeat as it could have been. I think they're all for sure stuck in their ways. Like I, I, Sarah Polly, like growing up, I'm curious how her character will be like having been to this very strange experience. Yeah, a, a little no, therapy. It's probably going to be necessary for her character. Yeah. Just a little yeah. bit. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, uh, Don McKellar's character, I don't even know. What, what is the last thing we see him do? I think Mia Kirshner is talking to him, right? And she, yeah, they kind of are talking about um, kind of their connection a bit. Yeah. And she almost like rebuffs his violation in, in a sense is yeah. which obviously Zoe sees and is ready to respond to but that's just an interesting question because I think that's always something that again feels like by design that they need to get to some grand catharsis in films like this and yeah you know I mean we understand more about the nature of some of the grief maybe in particular mm-hmm. one person who literally just had everything imaginable terrible to him. I'm curious because yeah. the uh, Criterion um, edition, which it does have a new conversation with Egoyan and Sarah Polly. So that'll be interesting kind of like oh. 25 years later to see what they think about the movie. And an audio commentary, which I think is older with a, with a composer. So that'll be kind of cool. And speaking of Calendar, uh, the movie that was before this, it's on the disc as well. So we're definitely curious. And I think the edition on Criterion channel is not the restoration because I was looking at some screen caps and the, the screen caps Ooh. definitely look a little more polished. So... That'll be cool to watch. Well, well, Jordan, thank you so much for talking to me about uh, Exotica today. Uh, Where can we find you these days? Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, Yes, you can find me on the film stage and over at Film Lincoln Center. Uh, Twitter is JP Ralph. You can find me on Twitter at at Snydell. I'm on Letterboxd, just at my name. Thank you so much for listening to Intermission, and we'll see you on the next episode. Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor The rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows the boat